If I was to ask the question this morning, <clears throat> who are you, what would be your answer? Who are you? You might begin by mentioning your name. I am Bruce or Elizabeth or whatever. And of course that name is not just a word. It's a name that describes, yes, who you are. But it's, it's, well, it's not going to be the case that there is anyone here this morning whose name isn't shared by someone else. Indeed, perhaps by a lot of people, by many, not just hundreds, but thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of names. Same people who have your name. So that itself is bad. You might describe yourself in your relationships. Well, I'm, and give your name, I'm the wife of, or the husband of, or the brother of, or the parent of, a child, an adult. And that defines your relationships, those things in life that are important to you, those things that signify much of who you are, of much of what you've done, and much of your achievements in life. Although it's important to remember that, of course, these things can change. And as I made reference to in our prayers of intercession, relationships change. They end. And ultimately, of course, all the relationships and networks we have will end at our passing. You might say, well, I'm so-and-so, and I'm this or that, and other in terms of relationships, and I do this or that. I'm a school teacher, or I'm an accountant or I'm a lawyer, or I'm a cleaner, or I'm a homemaker, or whatever. And that describes your activities, that describes you, you, your work, you, the things that you put your effort and time into. But again, looking round with respect this morning, many of us have entered into that glorious state of retirement. And so that's no longer particularly, I did these things. And we live in a day, of course, where work is certainly a very fluid thing. People's working life now is often made up of a whole host of different activities from when we started working life or when we went to university or college till we retire. The idea that you leave school and you go to college or uni or maybe you don't even do that, go straight into a job and that's you until you retire. Those kind of days are long past. And for many people, perhaps even including some of us sitting here, our work is far from a joy, but a labour that we do because we have to, to pay the bills, and we can't wait to be out of that circumstances. We might describe ourselves about our hobbies. I'm a philatelist, and when people look at me with a kind of strange look as to what that means, I mean, I say a stamp collector. And, and, and you might describe yourself, you're a bowler, or you're a golfer, or you're a football player, or whatever else. And you describe your physical activities, or the things that really get you going, that you're energised about, and you're excited at, and you give a lot of your time to. But again, hobbies can change. Our ability to do them will pass and alter through the years. All these things, and perhaps other things I haven't thought of, can be used to describe who we are. And they're all part of that life that our name signifies and speaks about. But I wonder if I was to ask you that question, who are you, how many of us right away would say, I am a Christian. I am a Christian. 
If you have your Bible or you're looking at it on your tablet or phone or whatever, then turn to these verses we've been looking at over these past Sundays from Paul's first letter to the Thessalonians. And we're going to finish our looking at this first chapter this morning by looking at some closing verses. But we're going to again, once again, read this whole section. First Thessalonians chapter 1. And invite you to read with me. Even if your Bible's a slightly different version, that's fine. They'll be able to follow. And perhaps even as you look at it from a different version, there'll be many things that'll come out that particularly speak to you. First Thessalonians chapter 1. Paul writes, Paul, Silas, and Timothy, names of people, to the church of the Thessalonians and God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace and peace to you. Just pause there. He uses actually a form of letter writing that was common in those days and indeed in the past was quite common here. The sender and then the people, the addressee, the people that are going to receive the letter. That's what he's done here. And he's described who they are. The church, the called out ones, the gathered ones of God the Father, who are in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ and who live in Thessalonica. Verse 2. We always thank God for all of you and continually mention you in our prayers. Remember before our God and Father your work produced by faith, your labor prompted by love, and your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers and sisters, loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you, not simply with words, but also with power, with the Holy Spirit, and deep conviction. You know how we lived among you for your sake. You became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you welcomed the message in the midst of severe sufferings with the joy given by the Holy Spirit. And so you became a model to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. The Lord's message rang out from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, your faith in God has become known everywhere. Therefore we do not need to say anything about it, for they themselves report what kind of reception you gave us. They tell how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. Who are these people? Well, we've looked at this passage over the last few Sundays. Here are people who are called out by God to live as a community of faith in a particular geographical setting. They are people whose lives demonstrate the kind of change that God brings. They did that partly in the way they welcomed Paul and listened to the message, but also the way in which they responded to that message. In the midst of severe sufferings, we're told, they received the message of the good Jews with the joy given by the Holy Spirit. And that was how they became known. Sometimes people will talk about, oh, that's the church that's set up on the main street. We're trying to describe Park Church to somebody who doesn't know Addington. You drive up the main street and you see it sitting up really raised up quite a bit from the main street and that's part church but this church they didn't have a building and all the trappings that go with it but they became known widely known because yes of the warmth of welcome they gave to Paul and the way in which they responded but particularly and this is how Paul ends these verses we're told that they reported the news went round and was reported of the kind of reception you gave us and we're told that they 
turned from God to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. And can I encourage you, those, that verse and a half or two verses is perhaps in, in Paul's letters the most succinct description of what is a Christian. Of what is a Christian. There are plenty of people, even today in our society, who would say, well, a Christian is someone who's a good person, who has a certain degree of moral understanding. Although, of course, even that nowadays, morality is very much what you perceive as being right and wrong. But people who would have a, a certain framework to their life. They might be, it might be a phrase that's used to describe to people who attend a particular building. They are Christians because they go to that particular church or, or fellowship or gathering. They're Christians because they hold particularly odd views about a number of issues. Although even there nowadays there's confusion. As many of you will know, the Church of Scotland just this past week at the General Assembly agreed to allow ministers to conduct same-sex marriage. So even in that area, Christians or professing Christians will have different views as to how certain things should be done. Paul here, writing to very similar times, and we've mentioned that in the past, very similar times, with a very sim similar spirit to the age, he's very clear that these folk who are gathered in Thessalonica are Christians because they turn to God from idols. Now, when the word idol is used, I don't mean idol meaning, you know, lying about being lazy, but when the word is used, idol, it's easy for us to picture some soul in some far-flung place you know, with a totem pole or a Buddha or something else stuck up in front of them and they're bowing down and they're burning incense and they're carrying on like that. And perhaps think that idolatry is reserved to tangible things like that. None of us, well, I hope not, have a Buddha in our back garden, although you can get them from the garden centres nowadays. None of us will burn incense to some statue or some man-made thing that we have created. But of course, idolatry is far more than worshipping things. That includes that, it's part of that, of course it is, but it's far more than that. And really, the defining statement as to what idolatry is, is the Ten Commandments. And these words, God spoke all these words. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or in earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. For I am the Lord your God. I am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sins of the parents to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commands. And while certainly during through the whole story of the Old Testament and indeed into the New Testament, idolatry was seen, yes, in worshipping man-made images and creatures. Behind all of that lies the understanding that idolatry is when we place anything or anyone in the place, the central place, that God, our creator, should have. That's why what I put into the intimation sheet for this morning is so important. Let me just read to you just part of what I've quoted. 
the modern sophisticated Western in the modern sophisticated Western world, the idols, that is the God substitutes, are equally powerful as those of the ancient animistic world. Some people eaten up with self. This is seen in their ambition for money, possessions, power or fame. Others become obsessed with their work or with sport or with their latest feed on social media. Food, alcohol, drugs, sex, as well as another person. Anything could all become forms of idolatry because they demand an allegiance which is due to God alone. So every idolater is a prisoner held in humiliating bondage. Freedom may be trumpeted, but the reality is very different. And then Tim Keller, in a slightly more modern era, says this, an idol is anything more important to you than God. Anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God. And anything that you seek to give, seek to give you what only God can give. You will remember at the beginning of the gospel, Jesus called people to repent. And who was he talking to? He actually talking, was, was talking to the Jewish people. They didn't have totem poles or Buddhas or idols in that kind of way stuck up in their gardens or in the temple. Outwardly, they were very religious. Outwardly, they believed in the one true God. But the reality, of course, was that the things that we've mentioned here, pride, selfishness, our own self-will, the lures of and the things that we, we are tantalized by and we seek after and everything else, all of these things had become more important than the worship of God. And Jesus used that call to repent, to turn away from these things. Interesting, as I was looking at some modern songs to perhaps amplify and express this, I did find a lack of them. I'm not saying they're not there. I just found a lack of of them. It all just seems a bit intense, doesn't it? To have to repent. To have to turn from idols. It all seems as if it's locked away in an ancient world or another time using language that really people don't feel very comfortable about and probably isn't very PC in our society today. And yet at the very heart of the call of Jesus, at the very heart of the story of the Bible, at the very heart of what defines as a Christian, is a Christian is someone who has consciously turned away from whatever it may be primarily self, towards God. After all, that is what Genesis tells us. The serpent in the garden said, eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and what will happen? You will become like God. And of course, it's perfectly possible for us to sit in church this morning and to be a Christian in that we come to a church. We attend to the various trappings of the Christian faith. We may even read our Bibles and go through certain things that we see are important. Yet in our hearts, the very area that God sees and knows most well than above everything else, we set apart not Christ as Lord, but our own pride. How we are seen. Our views and our attitudes. And some other things that we don't even mention. A Christian is someone who has turned to God from all of that. Now, of course, we're all human. 
And we all have our good days and bad days. And we all find at times the battle within us to turn away and to focus on him and make him the abiding central feature of our life, even above and beyond our relationships, our work, things that are not wrong in themselves, but our relationships, our work, the things we devote times and interest in, all of these things. But all of these things get their right place in our life when God is at the center. It's like the, having the compass and having the true north. And once that's discovered, Everything else begins to make sense and falls into their place. And that's what the good use of the kingdom starts with. A call to do that. And we all in truth, that's why as part of our service, Sunday by Sunday, and at gatherings for prayer and at other times, one of the most important prayers at the beginning of any time is a prayer to say sorry. And to say to the God who knows our hearts, we need your help in this area they turn to god from idols but it's not just a turning away it's a turning towards it's embracing and we're told what that was to serve the living and the true god the tangible sign of a new relationship in our lives whether that be a a love relationship as a future partner, husband and wife, whatever, whether that's be a relationship with as children, with parents, or whether that be with a friend, a good friend, or whatever. But one of the tangible signs of the importance that we place on that relationship is that we seek to serve that person, not in a slavish way. That's not a good sign. We don't become a prisoner of the whim or the will. That's not healthy. But we like to think and do what you know, somebody else would like to think and do. So, just to be illustration, and John might be listening to this, but John suddenly, um, Rook and Glen Park, the south side of Glasgow, right beside where we used to live, our address was very posh. Our address was for Rook and Glen Road. And I still remember we went to church, our church we went to in Githnock, and folk were very impressed how this young couple, 1984, could afford to stay in Rook and Glen Road. If any of you know Rook and Glen Road, it's where White Craig starts and all these beautiful houses. And they looked at us and thought, how on earth are we able to stay, especially as I was going to be trained to the ministry, we had to tell them, remind them, away at the end of Rook and Glen Road, at the Thornley Bank end, the cheap end, there was a wee row of terraced houses. And downstairs there was a two apartment, and upstairs there was a two apartment, and the folk upstairs had to go around the back end, a bit like the houses in Bothwell. It was a very modest thing. You know what it cost us in 1984? £14,000. And even that was a struggle, wasn't it? Times have changed. So I can assure you it was not plush, but the address gave the appearance that we were, we were living in the lap of luxury. John, my good friend John, John Faithful, doesn't know the South Side. Of Glasgow. So I've introduced it to him. And we started having lunch in Rook and Glen Gardens, not Garden Centre, but up at the where the pond is. I, I can see many of you never ventured to the south side of Glasgow. Well, you'll need to. It's really Glasgow. And and you go out and there's a beautiful pond, a big park, and a boating pond, and there's a nice restaurant there. And John really likes it because they make a bit of a fuss about it. And so we go there. Because he likes it. And because he enjoys it. That's the kind of things you do for a friend. You make the effort. You go the extra mile. You know, even do something you particularly wouldn't want to do, but you do it because it's going to please them. Well, my friends, if that's true in human relationships, which are important, 
then how even more true it is in our relationship with God. We invest in that. We go to follow the words of Jesus the extra mile. We turn the other cheek. We don't hold things in our hearts. We respond with grace and generosity. And we spoke about that last week. And all of that and so much more is a sign of what it is to have that relationship with God. Paul's words in Romans 12 remind us of that and what it is to be this living sacrifice. Let me read these verses to you once again. Paul writes, Therefore, in the light of all that God has done, and the grace that he has shown, and the call to turn to him and repent from idols, but to turn to him. This is what Paul says, Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world but be transformed with the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Here is a radical call for a transformed perspective, for a new way of thinking, because at the end of the day, what goes on up here will ultimately determine how we feel and how we respond in here and what we do in the public domain. Our minds are to be renewed. Our lives are to be transformed. That is our proper worship, not the songs we sing, the performances we go through, the format of our services or anything else. True and proper worship is when we offer our lives, our bodies, as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. And that's what the Thessalonians did. They serve the living and true God. We are surrounded by so many idols today. So many false gods. The deification of self and of private opinion. The deification of philosophies and other religions. The deification of materialism and of humanism and a whole host of other isms. All of that is up and down the streets of Uddingston and wherever we live. All of it's very apart. I have to tell you, as you walk out Brook and Glen Park and see these massive villas in white crates. Idolatrous. Not because there's Buddhas or temples to pagan deities, but the glorification of possessions and of what we can achieve and who we are. All of that and so much more. Our calling may well be to have a nice home, to live in a nice area. But far more importantly, it's to serve the living and true God. And as we draw to a close, what else does Paul tell us? He tells us that these Christians turned, repented, they served, they lived out their life of faith as a sign of that relationship with the living and true God, and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. Karen, right, Karen, Paul, right at the beginning of the service, read that story of ascension, which the church calendar was actually marked on Thursday. And those words have always stuck in our minds after Jesus spoke to them about waiting for the Holy Spirit and, and, and being open to receive his power. 
we're told in verse 9 of Acts 1, that he was taken up before their very eyes, a cloud hid him from their sight, and they were looking intently up into the sky as he was going, when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them, angels, and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. There's a part of me that feels a bit sorry for the disciples. Because you can well imagine they were, to use a more colloquial phrase, pretty gobsmacked when Jesus went up into them. You can imagine them all just standing there, looking up, you know. And it's amazing, if you start to do, in fact, you should never try that, maybe be interesting. Try that some week outside, you know, if you're going to, and just suddenly stop, start looking up. And I'm sure before you can hardly say, you know, Jock Thompson, the other folk were stopping looking up as well. They'd be saying, what are you looking at? And they'd all be saying, you know, you end up with a larger congregation out there than we have in here, all looking up to heaven. And then here's the opportunity for you to say, well, we were just thinking of a session day. And do you know that the day will come when you look up the heavens, Jesus will come again. The glory of God will be revealed and every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is, is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's what I'm looking up for. I'm waiting. Come, Lord Jesus. Maranatha. But if you do that for too long, a wee white van might come and you might get taken away. I was going to say to Hartwood, but that's shut now, so that wouldn't be very good to you. Because of course we have to live out our lives. And the angels said that. Yes, he's coming again. But waiting doesn't mean that you're doing nothing. If you're waiting for people to come and visit you, then usually, it's true in our house, you're still going around tidying the place up and getting yourself organised and getting yourself into the space or whatever for that person coming. You're not just sitting there going, <sighs> well, you might be, you'll get a surprise. You'll be like the, 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 the parable of the, was it the, the women who weren't ready for the bridegroom coming in and got caught and left outside. That's not a good example. You should be waiting and working expectantly preparing and that's what we're called to be as Christians it's that mindset that the Lord could come some of you of an older generation will remember especially from a particular tradition of the church perhaps today he will come and even if he doesn't come then none of us knows sadly as we've been reminded this past week none of us knows when we'll get the call to go We live our lives. We turn from our idols. We ask for God's transforming grace within our hearts and minds. As we walk the way of faith, waiting for that day. Maybe I'm just because I'm getting older. But my sense of waiting is increasing. Or perhaps it's the times in which we live and that trumpet will call and the dead in Christ will be raised and what we've seen through a glass darkly will now be revealed face to face hallelujah we live our lives with hope that's what he says remember at the right to the beginning, we remember before our God and Father, your work produced by faith, 
your labour prompted by love, and your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. And you might read that and think, that's so good. That's a good way to live your life. How can I possibly live a life like that? Well, here's the answer, my friends. You turn to God from idols. You serve the living and true God as you allow him by the Holy Spirit to transform your mind and to renew your hearts. And you wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. I tell you this morning, that what we've seen in our world, what we've seen in Ukraine, the terrible and awful things that we see in our world today are nothing, nothing compared to the calamity when the wrath of God will be revealed from heaven. And without the shelter of Jesus Christ and a hope in him, then that day of wrath will be for eternity. None of us, surely, if we're in our right minds, want that. So turn from your idols. Turn from self. I can assure you, Elizabeth and I were just joking last night, as I put my drops in for my dry eyes and rubbed in my cream for my varicose veins <laughs> and lowered myself into my bed after spending a day in the garden, Maybe that's why I'm saying, come Lord Jesus, you know. <laughs> and you might think, well, I can assure you, my friend, it'll come. And yes, our relationships, our work, our hobbies, the things that are good in life, and of course these things are good, all of that is precious. We just delight in our granddaughter. All of those things are precious. But even those things will pass. The only hope, the only lasting assurance, and the only security you can have, not just here, but hereafter, is in Jesus. He was raised from the dead and rescues us from the coming wrong. Repent and believe in the good news. But it's a message that is vitally needing to be heard.